0: Good morning, thanks Keith, I appreciate it. Oh, that's a good that's a good call. Excellent, all right. Take me a minute to get myself situated. Well, good to be with you. I am apologizing right off the top for my voice. Um, I have allergies and every once in a while they kick in pretty hard. And so, I don't know, about four nights ago I didn't sleep for a single minute because they kept me up all night. And uh, I just had an appointment, my doc switched medication, but. You know, I'm not, I'm not a college student anymore, and I was never the kind of college student who would uh, you know, pull all-nighters. That was never my style, uh, and less so as I've hit my 50s. So it, uh, it's taken me a number of days to kind of collect myself, but that's the status of The Voice. Um, so I've, I've been talking very little this morning. Hopefully, The Voice holds up uh, along the way uh, this morning. Just want to give you a quick update on ministry. Uh, so my wife, Diane, is there. You can wave hello to everybody. Um, now, you can applause for her. She's the winner of the of the pair of us here. Um, you know, ministry has been great at UConn to start the year. You know, like everybody, we've dealt with the COVID reality the past year and a half. And so all of last year, ministry was done virtually. And, you know, you do the best you can with that, right? And God was still faithful. He still showed up and, and did, did great things in the lives of students. But there's nothing like being together in person, right? And so... Last year was hard. It was really hard. And so this year, we've been able to meet with students in person. We've had our meetings on campus. We've seen God open doors with teams that we haven't seen in a long time. And uh, there's a huge energy. Even, even just the other day, just walking along campus, there were like thousands of people out, which felt amazing compared to last year. You know, last year, it was, it was like an apocalyptic movie Scenario: You'd walk on campus during a time of the day when the place should be packed and there was nobody. You know, And, uh, and it, was, it was just exciting to feel the energy of a college campus coming alive. So uh, we've been very, very grateful for the start of the school year, uh, grateful that students are back, grateful that God's opened doors for us. So you can pray for UConn and, and the students there. Uh, it's an exciting time to be there. And just pray that everything holds up because like you all, we're kind of bracing ourselves for the other shoe to drop, which can totally happen at any time. So we're just praying that God keeps things open and moving and, and we can still connect with students in person. I think the rule ought to be, you put it on speaker and answer it in front of everybody. That should be the deal, <laughs> that's right. Um, one other exciting thing for me personally is I took advantage of the, of the COVID world and I actually published a couple of books, which is pretty fun, uh, two, two books that are completely different in nature. One is titled, For Good Reason, and it's essentially a a defense of Christian theism. It uh, answers uh, 10 different questions that people regularly ask, like can you be good without God, or is life inevitable, or is it an accident, or is it a miracle, or why do bad things, why does God allow bad things to happen anyway? Some of these are questions that you've probably wrestled with and already have satisfying answers to, but a lot of people don't. And so it's a really helpful resource uh, for anybody who's curious about these questions. The other one is a totally unrelated, totally unrelated project. Uh, it's a baseball book about the Red Sox and Yankees, another passionate love of mine. And so uh, if you want to ask me any more questions about those afterward, I'd be happy to, uh, to tell you about either of those. One of, one of the great things about my job is that I get to and have to be in the Word a lot, right? Because we're ministering to students all the time. We're leading Bible studies, giving talks, etc. And I don't know about you, but, you know, not every passage of Scripture hits me in the same way that others might. In fact, there are some sections of Scripture that, frankly, I tend to just kind of breeze over, you know, like, oh, that's uninteresting, or uh, there's not much there for me. But, you know, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, all scripture. Even those passages that seem mundane, that seem uninteresting, that seem like there's just nothing there. I bet most of you can relate to me. Well, about nine months ago, I was prepping for one of our virtual Bible studies with our students. And I was taking some of the guys through the book of Mark. And I came across Mark three sixteen 16 through 19. And it was a passage that normally I would have just breezed over, not given two seconds of thought to. And here's the passage. It says, it just talks about Jesus and the disciples. It says, he, he Jesus, appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the, the name Boanerges, that is, son of thunder. Uh, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Again, normally it's just a list of names of people that you're already familiar with and I I normally would breeze by it. But I got stuck. I got stuck on one name in particular, Simon the Zealot. I just thought, what is it about that that's causing me to just pause here? Well, the term zealot was obviously meant to distinguish this Simon from Simon Peter, right? Two Simons. Uh, and so they're using the term zealot to, to distinguish. But I think here's why it, it struck me as, as something to pause on. You know, in our society, uh, I think we've seen this a lot in the last, really grow in the last five years, but, but people um, are tending to uh, merge, I don't know if that's the right word, but merge their beliefs, including their political beliefs, uh, their social beliefs, with their identity. So what ends up happening is that if Keith and I were to disagree over a topic, what would happen is that both Keith and I, more and more, will take that personally. And instead of just saying, oh, we disagree with each other on this issue, we, we incorporate our beliefs into our identity so much that if Keith disagrees with me, I feel like he's personally attacking me. And he's personally calling into question my very humanity. Does that make sense? A researcher, Dr. Mark Alicki of Ohio University, put it this way. He said, when people disagree with us, their disagreement not only influences the validity of our beliefs, but it calls into question our personal identities, the kind of people we want to believe that we are. So more and more disagreement over fundamental things, over social things, over political things, over theological things. is is not just a matter of disagreeing, it's a matter of personal attack now. That's how it feels, right? This This is difficult for me because I grew up in a home where my mother was probably as far left politically as anyone I've ever encountered. And my dad was basically as far right as anybody I've ever encountered. And they functioned fine in a marriage, like they got along. And so I grew up in a home where things were discussed, there were wild disagreements, and everybody loved each other. And so this idea that if Keith and I were to disagree on something, it would cause such division among us because we're feeling personally attacked is, a, is, a, is a, it's still hard for me to grasp. But that's the reality, that's, what, that's what's happening now. And that makes it hard to discuss tricky topics right because I'm nervous to go there with Keith because unless I know we see it the same way I'm now risking the relationship it's not just that we can disagree amiably and walk away it's like now I'm risking offending him so badly that we can no longer be friends we can no longer fellowship together because we disagree right and that stifles intellectual discussion that stifles the conversations that really need to be had over difficult questions Does that make sense it's a problem well all that, I think, was in my head in the background as I, as I stumbled on, on Simon the Zealot's name and I stopped there. Um, it took me a while to sort this through. Let's talk about that, that idea of Simon the Zealot. The Greek word there is and, and because of it, it led um, King James translators to erroneously translate his name here as Simon the Canaanite. And that's not really what it is. It literally means uh, a partisan for Jewish political independence. That's, that's, that's the, it's, a, it's really a derogatory term, at least um, in the Greek. And so Simon the Zealot, basically he was part of a political party. He was part of a, of a radical group that had certain political aims. They believed strongly, the Zealots believed strongly in the independence and glorification of the Jewish state. In today's terms, if we were to put him in today's terms, he might be considered a Zionist, right? A Jewish nationalist. But he also opposed Roman rule on the grounds that Rome was oppressive. And so he also, not only being like a nationalist, which would fit like one view of a political party today, but he also saw the world through the lens of oppressor and oppressed. And Rome would represent the oppressors And Israel would represent the oppressed, right? They were under the thumb of Rome. They couldn't do anything without Rome's approval. And so people in power were the oppressors. People not in power were the oppressed. So um, there are ways of thinking about that today. There's, 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 uh, There's philosophies that approach things like that today. However you want to categorize him, Simon had really, really strong cultural, political views and even theological views, right? Because for that group, a lot of this was born out of their theology. The zealots so badly wanted to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression that they engaged in all kinds of activity, including violent activity, knifing Romans in the night, uh, fomenting uh, uprisings, all in the attempt to topple the Roman power structure. In fact, in, in decades that would come later, the zealots would be so problematic that Rome would send an army to Jerusalem. In 70 AD, they would sack the city and conquer the mountain stronghold of Masada because the zealots, this radical group, pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed so hard for independence. So one commentator said of the zealots, they were a, quote, a Jewish sect bent on the overthrow at all costs of the Roman control of Palestine. The Pharisees, interestingly enough, agreed with the zealots now we're much more familiar biblically with the with the pharisees Uh, they agreed with the zealots in principle they they weren't quite so far as to propose violent uh, actions to achieve their goals but philosophically they were they were in agreement now interesting thing about the zealots is that not only did they hate the romans right they hated them because they had conquered israel they they were governing them they didn't allow freedom but they hated even more any Jew who supported the Roman government. Or not just supported, anyone who, who even gave legitimacy to Rome. Why would they hate them even more? Well, it's one thing to hate the people who are actually oppressing you, right? But when your own people are joining in that oppression against you, that's 10 times worse. So not only, not only were they were they uh, part of the oppression, but they were traitors as well. So the zealots really had no time whatsoever for fellow Israelites who they deemed to be complicit in this oppression by Rome, right? So that was the zealot. So if if, that's Simon, that's the world he belonged in, that's the viewpoint that uh, he came from, that was his MO. So it is this guy, it's this Simon, that Jesus calls to be a disciple, which is fascinating. Right? Why would Jesus choose this Simon? Didn't Jesus know what Simon stood for? Didn't Jesus know who he was? Of course he did. Of course he knew who the zealots were. Right? Doesn't this give the impression then that Jesus, by picking Simon, the zealot, that he was in agreement with what Simon was all about? That he was like, hey, I'm bringing you on board, big guy, because I want you to keep doing those things right? I like your style. This is what I'm for as well. Well, it turns out that's not the case at all. Not the case at all. I want to give you four examples from the New Testament where Jesus does exactly the opposite of what a guy like Simon would expect. Okay. First one, Jesus chose 11 other guys, including a guy named Matthew, the tax collector. Now, what do we know about tax collectors? They were hated by everyone, because who likes paying taxes anyway, right? Forgive me if anyone here works for the government or the IRS, right? Um, but, But they were hated particularly by the zealots. Based on what I just said a minute ago, I want someone to answer this, and I can repeat it for the recording, but like, why would Simon have a real problem with the tax collectors? Yeah, they're working for Rome to oppress Israel. Right? They're literally working for the guys. Okay? So, so they cheated their fellow countrymen out of money. They worked in collaboration with Rome to keep the Jews in subjugation. Right? So Jesus chooses Simon, but he also chooses Matthew. And I'm trying to picture, I'm trying to picture what those conversations were like. You know, they walked all over Israel, right? They didn't take a cab, they didn't take an Uber, they didn't fly places, right? So they would spend an entire day at times walking from place to place. And the Bible doesn't often tell us about the conversations that are had when these guys were walking to and fro, but I'm just I'm just trying to picture what this would be like, right? So it probably wasn't all 13 of them in a pack. It was probably like two or three here, two or three here, like in a little spread out little line. And probably at some times you had Matthew and Simon in the back talking. And and you know probably the disciples like, oh gosh, here they go again. Like they're, you know, they're going at it again. Right? And it must have made for some really interesting conversation. But I'm willing to bet that Simon and Matthew didn't really click. Even if Matthew was repentant, like, say, Zacchaeus was. Even if Matthew was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I was thinking. I bet Simon still had some issues with that. Right? Okay, number one, Jesus picked a tax collector. Number two, in Mark 12, 13... The Pharisees and another group called the Herodians who were uh, really supportive of kind of the Roman power structure actually because they were in support of Herod who was a Roman puppet leading Israel at the time. Um, They asked Jesus about whether or not it was right to pay taxes, right? Jesus had a lot of issues obviously with with the Pharisees. Uh, In this case, Jesus has an interesting answer to them. Now, the the Romans and the Herodians, I mean, the uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians saw things a little bit differently, but they were united in their dislike of Jesus. And so they asked this question really as a a way to trap Jesus. They wanted to to, uh, pin him in, right, get him to trip up on his own words. So they said, hey, is it lawful for for us to pay taxes? Is it right for us to pay taxes? And for for Jesus to say, yes, yes, it's right, uh, would have angered one group of people for him to say, no, it's not right, would have angered the other, right? That's why it was a trap. But what, is, what does Jesus say, right? Jesus says, says this, says, whose image is on the denarius, right? Show me the coin, whose image is on it? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. So he replied, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Now, in that answer, he's certainly making a bigger point about the kingdom of God not being the kingdom of this world. At the same time, though, he is legitimizing the government of Caesar and its authority in Israel. Yes, this money is Caesar's. You need to render to him what is his. That's the good and right thing to do. For some of them, that might have been a hard thing to hear. For Simon the Zealot, that would have been unconscionable. Jesus, here's a chance for you to take a stand and to say something strong about about the authority or lack thereof that Rome has here. And you're saying we should pay taxes? You're saying we should give to Caesar what's his? Are you kidding me? No way Simon would have agreed with Jesus on that. A third example, Luke chapter 7. There's a Roman centurion who wanted his servant healed. Now the centurion was a man who loved the Jews, And he even helped build their synagogue, right? So it'd be easy to say, oh, of course, of course, he was a pro-Israel. True, but he was also a centurion. Now, why was he a centurion serving in this part of the country? Because his job was to quell uprisings by groups like the who? Zealots, right? His whole purpose for being there was because of people like Simon the Zealot who were who were instituting violent actions to overthrow Rome. So even if, in in principle, this centurion was sympathetic to Israel and maybe even shared a a faith with them, he still had to serve in a Roman capacity. He was the the cop, right, for Rome. It was his job to keep Israel in line with Rome. Simon would not have been a fan of this guy Right? Because it's it's like it's like, yeah, great that you agree with us, but here you are using force to put us down, even if you think we're right. Why don't you just let us do our thing? It's like, nope, I can't. Who knows how many people the centurion arrested and put in prison, right? Even from the group the zealots. Okay. So again, another opportunity for Jesus here to to affirm Simon's view. Another opportunity for Jesus to say you know what, I I appreciate your faith, Mr. Centurion, uh, and I applaud you for that, but you understand that your authority here isn't really legitimate. Jesus says nothing about that. He just applauds him for his faith and he heals the centurion's servant. Fourth example, Jesus' trial itself. If you think about Jesus' trial... What part of Jesus' trial was just? I would argue none of it. Right? The accusations were false. Uh, the way they arrested him was unjust. They brought him to a, to a court and the trial was unjust. The sentence was certainly unjust. Right? I mean, crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. From a Roman perspective, all that was going on was a little in-house theological dispute, really, between factions of Jews. Why in the world would the Roman authorities get involved there? Well, we know why. We know that Pilate was was worried about a a mob scene, right? So in just an act of like self-preservation, he just said, fine, well, you know, it's either him or Barabbas, you choose, and they go free, Barabbas, crucify Jesus. He's like, great, that works for me. But like, that's not a that's not a just trial. That's not a just sentence. Right? At no point in this process did Jesus go through a, a, the justice system. Right? It was a sham from the beginning to the end. Now we know, we know that God was in this, right? We know that this is this was God's plan. Right? So we don't really have a problem with it because we recognize that that uh, this is how God decided to bring about the salvation of the world, okay? But if you really stop and look at it from a a standpoint of human justice, it was a total miscarriage of justice, right? Jesus had numerous opportunities. They, they, They asked him questions. They wanted him to speak. They gave him many opportunities for Jesus to say something, anything. But he basically said nothing, right? He could have at that moment said, Pilate, I just, I just, uh, um, you know, I want you to know, I want you to know that uh, this whole thing is not okay, that you really don't have authority here, right? That this is my kingdom. Like, he didn't say any of that. He allows, now again, we know why. We know that there's a bigger issue at stake for Jesus, but, but we know that he could have stopped all that. He could have spoken up. He didn't. He just let this thing go. And so it was, it was an affirmation of sorts of Pilate's authority because he, he uh, um, gave into it, right? He let himself be governed by that. So there are four examples from the Gospels where Jesus had opportunity to speak out against Roman rule and Roman oppression, and not one time does he do it. I challenge you, it's not really a challenge, but if you're interested in the subject, go through the Gospels, and you will not see anywhere where Jesus challenges the Roman authority. Now, we know that he challenges all kinds of authority on a spiritual level, like it's his kingdom. It's God's kingdom, right? But he doesn't challenge the human earthly authority of Rome. Maybe not a big deal to you and me, but to Simon the Zealot, that would have been an enormous thing. So here's the interesting thing. Simon signs up to be on this guy's team. And maybe he doesn't know at the beginning all that's going to transpire. But he stays with him through each of these subsequent events. He stays with him. Even when it's clearer and clearer and clearer that Jesus isn't about Simon's agenda. Jesus is about something very different, right? Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus disagreed with Simon. We don't know what Jesus thought about that, right? All we know is that the actions Jesus took were contrary to what Simon would have favored, right? Jesus seemed to show no interest in the things that Simon felt so passionately about and oriented his whole life towards. What's interesting is that it doesn't appear that Simon gave up his views because if you remember in acts chapter one right jesus has been with them uh he's been resurrected and what did the disciples ask him they say is it now that you're going to bring about your kingdom like people like simon still expected that and jesus is like no that's like dude like you've been with me for a while like aren't you getting it um it's not for you to know the times and the seasons when that's going to happen your job is to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. He reminds them, including Simon, that what Jesus is really all about is the great commission. At the end of the day, Jesus cares about a lot of things, but ultimately what he cares about the most is people, is the salvation of people. And so he's like, Simon, you gotta make a choice. Like, are you gonna continue to pursue this earthly agenda that you have, or are you going to pursue the agenda that I have, which is bringing about the kingdom of God to the world? So we know from church history that Simon ended up dying a martyr's death for the gospel, right? That even at that moment, he had a choice to make. At that moment, he said, okay, I'm putting my agenda to the side and I'm pursuing Jesus's agenda, right? I think what's fascinating for me about this whole topic is that I feel like it's pretty relevant to our situation today. I don't know most of you, I know a few of you pretty well, but I don't know most of you. Um, but I bet there's some, there's some disagreements on a whole host of issues, even in this room, right? If we wanted to pull it all out, we could have some knockdown, drag out, fights over a bunch of things, and some of it might be really personal and hard, right? Um, and I don't think the lesson here is that you should not believe strongly in the things that you believe in. I think Simon really believed it strongly, and Jesus never says, don't believe in those things, right? But I think the lesson here is that there is a greater thing that unites us than the things that divide us, even if the things that divide us, we believe so passionately about, and are good and right things to believe in. I think that's really the key in 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 Christianity. Right? The, the Bible talks a lot about unity, and it doesn't mean sameness. It doesn't mean we're all going to see everything the exact same theologically, politically, culturally, like you name it. Right? Sports. I mean, Keith's an Eagles fan. What is he doing here? Right? You know, it's like, it's it's. Thankfully, not a not a Yankee fan. But um, sorry, any Yankee fans? No, okay. Anyway. Right, that can get me in hot water depending on where I, I say that. Right? But like the, the Christian, the point of Christianity is 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 the kingdom of God, right? And that we can put all these other things aside, not disbelieving in them, not literally like saying, Well, I can't have an opinion about those or I can't feel strongly about those. But that those things become secondary to the overriding purpose of God, which is Nothing less than the salvation of the world. Like that's what he's ultimately about, right? That's what he calls us to as a church, what he calls us to as Christians, what he calls us to as a ministry on campus. So I don't know everything that this church is going through, whether it's individually, personally in your lives, as a community, you know, within the state of Connecticut, I know we have lots of things that could potentially divide us. The lesson I draw from Simon is that even a person who has Uh, such incredibly deep convictions about really important things is willing to put those things aside for the sake of the kingdom if he can do that so can I and I think so can you right and just as a as the last little bonus to end this time uh, I just want to go back to what I said at the very beginning like this was something I worked on about nine months ago because I was going through preparing a Bible study, and I stumbled on a passage of scripture that I normally would have just breezed over, right? I unpacked all this stuff, and my study notes are much more, you know, vast and in-depth than even what I just shared this morning. But it all came because I was just like triggered by, by a, wor- a single word in a, in, a, in a benign little passage, you know? And I just think, that's so cool. Like, all scripture is inspired by God, and, You can read read parts of Leviticus that your eyes glaze over, right? But if you pay attention and you ask God to show you something, he can show you some amazing things in his word. So be encouraged. All right, let me pray. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for everyone here. Thanks for an opportunity to share your word and to dive into scripture and to learn from uh, people like Simon. I pray that we'd be able to take the right lessons from him and apply the things that we learn, and I pray that we'd be able to be unified in in the mission that you call us to, even if we disagree over other really important things. Thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.